host Kevin Pollack here. How have you been? Did you have a good week? Was it more than a week since you listened to the last episode of this here, My Mrs. Maisel Pod? Did you write to us at mymrsmaiselpod at gmail.com? Did you? Have you? Will you? Won't you? Rate, review, all those things. What about the Soch? Have you posted about this podcast? Reposted? Tagged me? Just to earn a chance at winning some fabulous My Mrs. Maisel Pod swag, as well as items from my experience working on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which I've been saving. Every table read, there's all these accoutrements in front of our seats, as well as the script. And I would, I would swipe, I would keep. Yeah and collect them, not knowing someday I could parcel them out to adoring, lovely fans of my Mrs. Maisel Pot. Post, write, review, email, do all these things. Be involved. The bottom line here, folks, is I want you to be a part of this podcast in the absolute best way. Share your enthusiasm. Any questions, comments about the podcast or questions about any of the guests I've had or any person who's ever worked on the show that you would like me to talk to. I may have already recorded an episode with them. You don't know, but get me a question. Even if I have recorded with them already, I will go back into that episode and I will add the reading of your email and the response from the person, because after hearing from you, I will contact that individual and I will say, hey, this person emailed by name, this person I will share. They'd like to know this. I will gather up that information and I will share it back with you on this very podcast. Involved, be involved, and I will thank you. I will thank all the people who've already written in gloriously, oh my, almost endlessly, but it can't be. I'm doing everything I can to get back to you. Please thank you for your patience. My guest today, oh, we have had a love fest working on the show. Caroline Aaron and I, of course, play Shirley and Moish Maisel. She likes to quote me. What I said to her, I think, maybe in the first episode we did together, which is, we are the comic relief within a comedy. They give us so much shtick and silly foolishness to portray, but Caroline's portrayal of Shirley Maisel is one of my all-time favorites of the show. She owns every scene she's in. I do all I can to just hold my ground when we're in the scene together. Man, oh man, is she one of the funniest people I've ever met and worked with now, happily. We had done the film House Arrest prior, many years ago, and we talked about that. We broke down episode five of season one, talking about, you know, the stand-up world, but also Midge's desire and need to find a day job and the effort of finding that work at B. Altman and what it ultimately meant to herself and her pride and her, I can stand on my own two feet, I can do this. So Caroline and I talk about also the struggles of a stand-up comedian having to bomb on stage, the ritual of that, and what it means and, you know, the whole falling off the horse and getting back on of this occupation. You know, this episode is so chock full. So Caroline and I really roll up our sleeves. But also Caroline shares a great deal about her own journey, and that's always appreciated. I love Caroline Aaron, now and forever, and I'm excited for you to hear this episode. Yay, yay, yay. Please enjoy. And now, please welcome, as threatened, my wife, co-star, and inspiration, Caroline Aaron. Caroline! Hey, Kevin. Honey, you're at home in New York. Yes. All right. I'm being separated from you, but we are. Don't care for it. No, don't care for all. You uh, have lived in New York for how long now? Well, I lived in New York until I moved to L.A., and I was in L.A. for 23 years right. and came back to New York for Maisel. So I've kind of lived both, both places. But now I'm a New Yorker again. Right. You and Tony both with the back and forth. That's right. And when you became best friends, you and Tony Shalhoub, did that yes. begin out in L.A. when you were both living there for a couple of decades? No, that began in New York City. We've been following each other around. We both had the same agent, you know, Broadway Danny Rose, you know, sure. where I would finally go. <laughs> I haven't had an audition in six months. And he would go, don't be desperate. They smell it. You know, it was one of those kind of agents. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Tony got out before I did, but we met through that agent. We became really good friends. And then he moved to LA and I moved shortly thereafter. We lived around the corner from each other. Then he told me he was doing a new series in New York. He moved to New York. And then, uh, you know, Maisel happened for us. And then I just chased him back down to New York City. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the process of you joining the show? Let's start with there. 
Okay, the process of me joining the show was I got a call from my agent saying that Amy Sherman Palandino wanted to have a conversation with me about a new show she was working on. I didn't even know at that time that Tony, I think, was the first one in, that it was the show that Tony had come back to New York to do. And the only reason I knew who she was, was my daughter was obsessed with Gilmore Girls, obsessed. Every time I'd walk through the living room, she was like on her seventh viewing. And I went, are you watching that again? And she Mm. said, mom, if the grandmother and mother on this show had a baby, it would be you. You have to watch this with me. So we made a deal that I would watch all seven seasons with her. And the story of that show is that show ended with the title character going off to Yale to college. So we made a deal that we would watch all seven seasons and I wouldn't watch the last episode. We would watch it together the night before I dropped her at college, which is exactly what we did. And I loved the show and I thought it was amazing. And then I get this call and I went, is that Amy Palandino from Gilmore Girls? They said, the very one. And I thought, well, the answer is yes. I don't need to talk to her because my currency will go so far up with my daughter. But I got on the phone with Amy. She told me about these characters that she was adding to her story. They'd already shot the pilot. They sent me the pilot Mm -hmm. to look at. I never saw anything like that in my life. I was so astonished when I saw the pilot that it was so beautiful and the production values and everything about it was so far above anything that I'd ever seen on television. So when I spoke to her, she said when she first did the pilot, Amazon said to her, make it look like a movie. Yeah. So she did. Yeah. And she talked about Shirley Maisel and these characters of Shirley and Moish Maisel and sort of based on an aunt of hers, but not exactly, but she was describing the difference between these two families, the Weissmans and the Maisels. And we chatted about it. She said, I'd love to send you the script as if I was going to say no. You know what Uh I mean? Sure. For your consideration. Yes, for your consideration. The answer was big yes. And then when I had a costume fitting, and so I was all, she said it might be two episodes, but right now it's just one. And that was all it was to be, to begin with. And I went for a costume fitting. I said, who's my husband? Who's my husband? So boy, was I excited. When they told me and you were not you hadn't even come to New York yet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I got the initial call around the same time. But because I was in California, there wasn't going to be a wardrobe fitting into much closer to shooting. Yeah. And also, yeah, there was so little, you know, that second episode of the first season was our first episode, as you said. And there was so much going on that it was kind of extraordinary for you and I to be thrown into the deep end of the pool. It wasn't just your typical guest star or no. possible reoccurring. It was, okay, so we're on the show now. It's how it <laughs> right. felt, right? Yeah. Without a certain yeah. level of commitment to being offered a series job. Yeah, it was exciting for both of us. Yeah, indeed. And so we go to the wardrobe fitting and then you meet Donna, the genius. Yes, the genius Donna. I mean, I just couldn't quite get over it. And, you know, measurements and fabrics and gloves and hats and coats and yeah. underwear. And I was like, wow, I've just never, I mean, you and I have been to this rodeo quite a few times. So sure. I had expected one thing and this was a whole new thing that I had no idea about. And I remember being on the set the first day and we didn't know anything at that time about being letter perfect. You had to memorize letter perfect, not change a comma. Did I mean, I knew Tony. So that was my way in. Yeah, I've guest started on so many shows and I always say it's like being a transfer student. You don't know where the lunchroom is. You know, everybody else has a relationship and then they go lunch and you go, Where's everybody going? Where are you going? You know, that kind of thing. So having a touchstone there, having Tony there was like a gift for me. Yeah. You know, and you and I, of course, had co-starred in a comedy film together, at least one. I'm sure there's others that you and I may not even know about. We were in together. I know. (laughs) We've both worked so much. Yeah. And then um, I think I felt like during the maybe the production of that first episode for us, second episode for the show was when my agent reached out and said, you know, they, they want you and Caroline to be reoccurring. And then I immediately thought of a dear friend who I'm sure you've also worked with because we've worked with kind of everybody, Brian Doyle Murray, who said, Oh yeah, I love reoccurring. They're always happy to see you. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great sentence. (laughs) Yeah. So also before we jump into season one, episode five, that will break down a little. I like to get everyone's take on the world of doing this show, not just the first time you're there, but then mm-hmm. what becomes this weird norm? 
You know, I've, we've talked a lot about the table reads, so there's no pressure to comment on them unless something stands out to you, like the first time you realized, oh, shit, there's a carving station, you know, right. <laughs> whatever the thing is. But just being in their world, you mentioned Letter Perfect. It is an odd thing in television. In fact, maybe Sorkin is the only one who has a reputation for his word is Bible and like doing a play where the author, the playwright mm -hmm. is to be respected every, but yeah, I'd never experienced it in TV. In fact, the only film was a few good men and it wasn't because Aaron Sorkin was on the set necessarily having written the play that had already run for over 500 performances, but because Rob Ryan, the director decided to be respectful to Aaron's film script screenplay as if, Mm -hmm. It were a play. That was Rob, the director's decision. But yeah, I'd never worked on anything that called no. for this. You have decades and decades of experience and success in the theater. So theater, this yeah. comes much easier to you, I'm assuming. Well, it was very surprising, though. And I'm trying to remember, Kevin, and I can't remember when I got the message. Do you know what I mean? Because having done so many film, yeah, yeah. having so much film and television, and I'm used to the actor as collaborator. Oh, yeah. Especially in terms of script. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And even when it's been pretty high up there in the universe of show business, where even with Elaine May and Mike Nichols, where I would go, you know, I feel like my character would say this or say that or whatever. Very hospitable. But yes. I got the message right away. And I don't know how that this was not like that, that we were being invited into somebody else's dream yeah. to walk around in. And it was our job to make it fit like a glove. And I don't, I don't think there was, I don't think I discussed it with Tony. I don't think I discussed it with anyone else. I just thought, wow, that's the way this works. And you just can't argue with it when you see it. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. You just go, wow, it's so great. And, you know, I think if there were a lot of cooks in this kitchen, the meal would not be anywhere near as sumptuous. And yeah. so, you know, we share that, right? Yeah. I feel like we share the ability to make the words our own to improvise when it makes sense to have that discussion with the showrunner. Hey, can I try this? Right. And I don't remember either a moment of anyone saying, yeah, that's not going to fly here. But other than I was going to suggest a line. Oh, uh, really? That, that first episode we shot together. I don't remember who, maybe Tony, maybe Mike. And they just sort of gave me one of those. No, don't do it. Yeah. Cause I said, what do you think of this line? And they said, that's good. But yeah, no. <laughs> It was I very know, subtle. Have, you know, they have you there, you know what I mean? And this is your world for real. And yet I kind of got the message we weren't going to be doing that. Now, truthfully, I was just petrified of them, petrified of Amy and Dan, because it's all in their heads. It's yeah. on the page. And in order, you know, there's not long conversations about what does this mean or why am I saying this or whatever? That all becomes our job or whatever we all do as a cast. But I did ask them recently, like in the last season, did they cast chemistry as mm. well as actors? Because honestly, the chemistry among this cast, you have to admit, five seasons in, no assholes, no fights, <laughs> no competition, no backbiting, none of it, not one. I mean, you know, we've done a lot of press for this show. And when people ask me questions about how does the cast get along, I go, obviously, I would say fabulously, even if it was a big lie, because I've done that many times. <laughs> but this time, it's not a lie. Oh, thank it's God. really not a lie. It's <laughs> yeah. absolutely the truth. Yeah. And I think people often ask me, when the families are together, do we improvise those big dinner scenes? And I go, not even a comma. Yeah. You know? Well, that's the thing. And tell me if you agree that as much as I like having freedom and improvising and all of that, there's also, I discovered, an incredible comfort, the way that children actually like rules and boundaries and a dog yes. will sleep in its pen or whatever you call them because it likes the comfort of those borders. There's yeah. something very freeing about, oh, so I just have to memorize this and right. get out of my own way and don't hit the furniture. So you've right. written it so well, right. but also, as you point out, the casting, the chemistry, something settled into my brain, maybe halfway through season two of... Why am I not getting any direction from these people? Why is the only direction I'm getting is pace it up? I can't right. be I can't be that good. And then right. I, re I realized they did cast a exact piece of a component of a whole when yeah. they chose. Yeah, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And I have to say, now Tony said to me the other day, and he may be right about this. As we have gone along, they have been writing to our strengths. 
Yeah. Even though I never had a conversation with them. I mean, you know what I mean? Of where you, you know, after a while you have ownership of a character. Yeah. Even though it was born of somebody else's imagination, I feel like Moish and Shirley belong to us more than to them, even though they created them. Because, you know, when you take a walk in those shoes for an extended period of time, you know, you start to own this character and think like them and behave like them and you kind of know who they are and what they feel and stuff like that. And he said, part of the reason of that is as it's gone along, they have been watching us. They have been sort of figuring out what are our strengths? Yeah. Where's our bullseye? And writing towards those things. I mean, you and I are add-ons, which is quite flattering when you think about it. Sure, of course. They did not. I mean, I don't think the only thing I know is when they made this pilot, which when you think about it, it's pretty remarkable. They made a pilot about a breakup of a couple at the center. But from the very beginning, they knew her ex was going to be a regular. Now, in a normal television show, you know, there's the breakup and you might see him show up you know, as a recurring character, but they knew he was always going to be there, but they didn't always know we were going to be there. That was never, yeah, Yeah. that was necessarily in their imagination. So I think that many of these characters that are expanded and added is that we are having a dialogue with them, but they're just not talking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's amazing that that Amy is incredibly effusive and affectionate towards each of us with, you know, be it at a table when we just first greet each other or anytime during production. If you have a question, she'll answer any question, but there is no offering of information, None. which is also speaks to their strength of they do know exactly what they want. So there's almost no reason to explain it to anyone. If you're not getting it, if you're not getting it, we'll let you know, which is what I needed a season and a half to realize. Kevin, you're only going to get direction if you are horrible. Right, right. If you've gone off the deep end, which has, I've really never seen them. The only other person that I've worked with like that, who doesn't direct you until you careen off the highway in his imagination is Woody Allen. Yeah, yeah. Same thing. He does not, it's like, he has nothing to say to you. So, of course, in your insecurity, you know, you're rolling the tape in your head. He hates me. I'm getting fired. I'll yeah. never see him again. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. And then when somebody goes off, he'll give them a direction, but never when they're, you know, there's no praise involved. There's just work. Well, that's right. There you go. There it is. There it is. The praise is, all right, we got it. Let's move on. That's, that's, that's right. Praise. That's the praise. <laughs> that's the praise the... is you're invited to the party. That's yeah. the praise. Both Amy and Dan like to do multiple takes, right? So when you're doing a bunch of takes on one scene, on one piece, you do start to think, okay, they're not getting what they want, clearly. Right. So should I ask them what to do differently? Or right. are they or are they just going to keep doing it until we get lucky? What yeah. the fuck is happening here? I know. But you do sort of learn, no, they just like to do multiple takes. Yeah. And there's so many moving parts that they want to get as many of them as close to perfection as possible, right? And I think we get better. I mean, especially Amy will do that. She'll, we'll do a take and she'll be, there's nothing to fix and she'll go, just do it again. Mm -hmm. And I've learned over these years that that's my chance to be better. That's all. Then I was the last. That's a great point. I've always been, you know, wildly untrained actor who worked on instincts and had a natural ability to be real yeah. to the lens to to be authentic so consequently without training or technique after about take three i am bored to fucking tears and the, the <laughs> life just drains out of my face and here you're right it is a silent encouragement let's be yeah. better let's be better let's be better yeah right and that's between you and your own muse yeah. however that however you're going to make that happen you know and it's really quite extraordinary. And they also are not vulnerable to criticism. You know, I think one of the things that, you know, I heard a long time ago about television, which really made me laugh is my agents called me and said for a series that I'd auditioned for, you're their first choice. Unfortunately, this time they're going with their second choice. And <laughs> it was really a true thing because everything's done by committee, yeah. usually in television. So the chances of a group of creative people all agreeing on the first choice is not good. And then everybody has to throw out their first choice, go to their second, third, until there's consensus. Well, because this is a single vision show, there doesn't need to be consensus. And that's what's really, you know, so glorious about it, I have to say. And they don't seem to be pressured by 
a studio, by journalists, by anything they had. When the pandemic came and we kept being postponed and postponed, and I thought, and all these shows were opening and closing, and I went, this show has such scope. It has such size. Yeah. Season three opened with a USO show with 800 extras. Yeah. Well, we're not having 100 extras in a pandemic. So I'm thinking, okay, so we're going to be in the kitchen and people will have you know conversations because that would be the safest way to film during this, you know, Sure. epidemic and we get the first script of season four and it's at coney island and i'm yeah. like oh they plan not to back off in any way yeah let's take the several hundred extras outdoors That's yes the exactly. difference <laughs> exactly but the size of it didn't yeah. change yeah yeah you know out of our five seasons kevin two of them are pandemic seasons two-fifths it's a lot yeah we should tell folks at the time of this podcast episode recording we are Still finishing episode three of season five in terms of shooting, mm -hmm. three of nine. So we're about near the end of one third of our work. And because it was announced that it's our fifth and final season, there is, I think you and I have always spoken every year, just this level of gratitude, but it comes from every department. Everyone is just so happy to be a part of this circus mm -hmm. that with the confirmation, even though Amy's been threatening from day one of my experience, this is a five season show. If we're lucky enough to get five seasons, she just kept saying that. And I, I believed her. But when it is confirmed, then there is a sense of sadness. But my oh, sadness didn't really last that long just because immediate the sadness I realized was just it's so much fun. I could do this forever. That was yeah. the sadness. It wasn't Absolutely. anything else. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what? You just pointed out something, Kevin, that I didn't even notice until right now. Do you realize it's the exact same crew for five seasons? That never happens. No. Never. You go on it. Never, ever, ever. You're right. There's new designers. There's new camera people. People, you know, are because cable and streaming is a much shorter season than network right. television. Right. So in terms of work, people are moving around a lot, trying to get the most that they possibly can out of their work life and no one has left. How about that? That's a great point. And it is pretty another sort of celebration of the single vision. Yes. Let's uh, break open season one, episode five. Yes. This very strange, it's the first, the overview for me to take away was it was the first time we've only had four episodes. So it's not that far into the story, but where stand up for Midge as a profession, as an option, as a, is this really happening, begins to feel like a job or a challenge or work as opposed mm -hmm. to, bam, I'm just going to get up on stage and speak my mind. Right, right. And I, as a stand-up of 40 plus whatever years, I really appreciated that unfortunate realization of, oh shit, I'm not just naturally good at this. I've got to, I've got to do some work. I remember when I was 20 years old, I'd already been on these big stand-up comedy stages in the San Francisco Bay Area for a, over a year. And the big shot at the time, this guy, Marty Cohen, came up to me after a set one night and said, you know, I wanted to impart some wisdom on you. I said, please, whatever you've got because you're great. You're my hero. The fact that you're speaking to me right now is all that matters. So if you've got something to add to the mix here, I'm all ears. He said, well, I'll just say that you're compelling as hell to watch. And when your material catches up with your stage presence, <laughs> you're going to really be something. And he wasn't wrong. I mean, I was 20. I didn't know how to talk necessarily. I was doing shtick. I was doing, well, I was doing mostly impersonations. So I would just build a little shtick around them. You know, every comedian, every storyteller needs to find their point of view. What is your opinion about everything? You know, that's one of the things I've learned from you. It's been, you know, it's like my secret, you're my secret sauce and that you are a stand-up and you know this world and you're very literate about this world. I tell people this story all the time when we were shooting in season two and there was a stand-up comic as part of the story and you went, he's a real guy. Like when they, they go back in history and they pull real comedians out of the history of comedy. Right. What I found from this episode that really surprised me revisiting it is that she fails. And it reminded me that I had read a long time ago, Steve Martin's book called Born Standing Up. Sure. And one of the things I got from that book is this is the only thing in entertainment where you can't be dragged off of the drugstore stool and become a star. No one skips these steps, no matter how big a comic they are. Steve Martin says in this book, the only way you find your point of view and your act 
is you do every single possible gig you can all over the country in shitholes everywhere. And everyone goes through that rite of passage. No one just showed up one day and was Jerry Seinfeld. Do you know what I mean? He didn't just, somebody didn't say after he was funny in a living room, you should be a stand-up. And then he was a star. There are many movie stars like that. There's a lot of people in our business whose backstory was no backstory. They just showed up and they had that it factor and they became huge. This doesn't happen with comedians. No, there's no such thing. Yeah. And it was that moment in the first season of this show where as an audience, we begin our journey with our central character on what it really means to take on this career, not just accepting it for yourself, hiding it from your parents, having this relationship with a new manager, finding encouragement in your own thoughts. Um, You could really do this. It's now let's roll up our sleeves. And what does it really mean? So that was one of the things I like. And at the same time, Amy, Sherman Paladino and Dan in their creative genius give Midge from the outset of the episode, a decision she's made. I'm going to be an independent woman. I'm going to get a day job. If I'm going to sneak out at night and pursue this other thing, I'm not just going to be a mother. And then we got a bunch of mail to the show saying she's a horrible mother. First of all, (laughs) Not true. Possibly true, but wildly true of every artist in the late 50s, early 60s. There was the cookie cutter families. But if there were artists in the house, things were things were different. They were considerably different. And children began to be raised by TV. It's the other thing I love in this episode where Ethan is plunked down for maybe the second or third episode. We see him plunked down in front of the TV. It began. It began with the invention of this damn box. And now we have all these screens where people just dump their kids in front of a screen. and But there's an understanding of, I just need a fucking break. I just need a break. Honey, watch the TV. Right. Exactly. Right. Also, there's another thing in this episode where there's a shot of Midge holding her baby daughter. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of from, and she's by a window. Yeah. And it looks like the Pieta. It's just a beautiful, if you were a freeze frame on it, it was beautiful. Then the camera pushes in and she's reading variety. And then the next thing you see is just her hand circling an ad. And so this, she's holding her baby in one hand and she's circling her opportunities in the other. And I just thought it was so, you know, there were things when I was watching this episode for us to get together and talk about it. There were things like that that, you know, when they just release this more slowly than they had in the past. And Dan said, these episodes are really dense. You can't get it all on one viewing. And it's really true. When I went back to do this, to look at this again, I went, there's so many things I did not remember or catch the first time. The idea that Susie, who also has no experience, knows this, that you also have the history of comedy where the Wally Shawn character, where people who were stand-ups bought jokes. That's what they did. Yep. I guess that was the way comedy evolved in a sense. And so she tries that route. There were so many things I had not remembered and I hadn't remembered her failing so much. And, you know, she has a lot at stake to make this choice in terms of the time period. So the fact that she fails and then still makes the choice. Uh, yes. And finds a frustration and has this big fight with Susie and says, well, that's it. I quit. When she bombs right. the second time with the cards, jokes written by our dear Wally Sean who was trapped in the basement with us in, um, what was it? In house arrest. House arrest. Yeah. 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 Yes. I'll never forget. Yeah. I remember doing an impression of him for the crew. And it was one of those moments where you're being funny, getting laughs. And then all of a sudden everybody goes silent and you realize, oh, he's standing behind me, isn't he? He'd come down to the (laughs) set. Right in the center of me doing his voice. (laughs) So great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure I sound like that, Kevin. (laughs) All right, Daffy. So she gets the day job. We meet those people at B. Dalton. First, she goes in to be the elevator operator, and we get a sense of she's just circling one ads, showing up, you know, looking the way she does. I'm going to be an elevator operator. All right. Well, maybe you just want a job. But the cluelessness that is doesn't need to be spelled out, but is crystal clear is kind of great and subtle and wonderful and even when she gets the job at B. Dalton at the makeup counter that she does just from she can't control herself by making suggestions to another potential client uh, in the makeup department. When she finally gets back to the apartment and reports it to the elevator operator, I'm going to work. He's sort of nonplussed like, OK. 
And you know what else? You probably don't know because you're not a girl. But at these department stores, B. Altman's and Saks and places like that, females didn't do that. And that's the other thing that was so interesting about this episode to me is that she doesn't see gender in the way that the rest of the world in the 50s did, which is that's a boy's job. Makeup counter is a girl's job. Elevator operator is a boy's job. So she initially goes in and goes, I I, want to do this. And that's why they are so, no, you can't do that. You're a girl, you know, kind of thing. And, you know, she's such a combination of this character of determination and naivete. She doesn't see obstacles. Right. And I love the Abe character, the way Tony plays his reaction to her announcing, I got a job. He keeps coming back into the kitchen and saying more questions about what you, you got a degree at college and what's happened. You know, all of that stuff. and is, is, you know, Rose, her mom, shoving the door in her ex-husband's face. And the only thing she says is she doesn't say anything about the fact that he cheated on her or anything. She just says, your wife is at work. As if, could there be anything that is more of an indictment of your character than you let your wife have a job? Yes. Not just let, but also forced. Forced, right. Yeah. You, you took away her solid base and all that. Yeah, that was a great moment when Joel's at the door to drop off Ethan and she just, as she's closing the door in his face. Yeah. Yes. Your wife is at work. Your wife. Is you should be ashamed. You know that because we forget. I mean, none of us were around then when women going to work, especially women with young children. It just, you know, when it wasn't a thing. No. And do you remember Abe said in the first episode to her, what did you do? When the marriage split up as if it was that she had somehow fucked up yeah. that she and her husband weren't together. And their big anxiety was, how are you going to live? Who is going to take care of you? It doesn't cross anyone's mind that she will take care of herself. No. And she is the one whose mind that crosses. And yeah. Susie. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty great. At one point, Midge is in bed listening to a Mort Saul album. So we yes. we get this sense of her doing her version of homework without necessarily having been told how to do the homework, mm-hmm. which I also like. She's finding her own way. She makes the mistake by buying the bad jokes from the what Susie refers to Herb Smith as. Didn't she call him a bottom feeder? She calls him a bottom um, feeder, joke recycler. Yeah, it was crystal clear that that character of Herb Smith, you know, he, he meet me at the stage deli and orders all this classic Jew food for her. Right. As Jewish as he might look with a name like Herb Smith, we're certainly led to believe he's not. And then gives her all she just hands over her notebook. This is all of her thoughts. And mm-hmm. he's going to magically turn it into an act or at least five minutes for $15 is the deal they make. Yeah, stage deli bottom feeder is how, uh, yeah. Yeah. Jamie says, Susie calls Herb a stage deli bottom feeder and calls Midge a cunsy luhu. <laughs> <laughs> Susie and that mouth of hers. So the idea that she's just going to be handed a stack of three by five cards to take on stage that have been written by Herb Smith jokes and Susie's authentic organic reaction is so you're, you're writing your jokes on cards. Are you doing cards? Is that what yeah. we're doing? And Midge, even this is how Bob Hope started, because that's what she's told by Herb Smith. And then Susie's natural reaction is, since when are you Bob Hope? Right. Or want to be Bob Hope? Let me just say my biggest fantasy the entire time I've been in this show is that I would have somebody represent me like Susie. That's what we all dream of. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like she sees the talent that's there. She will not give up on this one. And it is just I mean, that's the part that might be fiction um, because also, yeah, the straight shooter. Of yes. Life. Usually the manager has to be blind to the reality in order just to keep the train moving forward. You know, the famous Sandy Gallon, the manager, Sandy Gallon, who represented so many big stars. Do you know yeah. the famous story when he called Rob Reiner and Rob Reiner was on his worldwide search for the female lead in the movie, The Princess Bride? Do you know that? Oh, one? no, 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 no. I want to hear. So Rob had spent. A very long time meeting with first every known famous movie star, female who wanted the part. The book had been around a long time, Princess Bride. Several places tried to figure out how to do it as a movie. Nobody could. The project had been around a long time. So when it was announced that Rob was doing it, every agent, every actress, everyone's going at this part. And then Rob is also reading hundreds and hundreds of unknowns for the part. He wants to discover somebody, which he ultimately ended up doing. And Robin Wright. But during that process, which was hellish and going on for months and months and months and months and months and months, and and everyone knows Rob Reiner can't find a girl. 
he gets a call from famous manager of the stars, Sandy Gallen. And that Sandy says, Rob, your search is over. I've got your girl. Rob, you know, typical big New York Jew. Sandy, don't mess with me. You better have someone that's perfect. That's a bold statement. You have no idea. Rob, I'm telling you, it's over. You're done. I've figured out the puzzle. You're welcome. Rob says, okay. All right. Oh, I hope this is right. Okay, Sandy. Who? Who is it? And without any self-awareness, guile, even any hustle or bullshit, he says with true earnestness, Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> and Rob's reaction was the same as yours about Susie. I, I want you to be my man. If you can be that blind and single-minded and myopic and not realize yes. that every time I tell anyone this story, the reaction is going to be of Caroline Aaron's. It's hilarious, you idiot. Oh, it's so great. I know she's a very interesting character also. And Amy has said, you know, when she thinks of what is the couple at the center of our story, it yeah. is of these women. Yeah. And I think that's pretty interesting. And I have never seen that before. Pretty damn phenomenal. Also, you and I have our big scene. Yes. At a dinner with our son and his new girlfriend, Penny Pan. Wait, and before we even get into the sure, content sure. of that. Sure. Do you remember where we shot that? In that beautiful place that had such expensive art? Yeah. And that somebody backed up into one of the paintings and alarms went on. I mean, it was the most gorgeous, gorgeous place. It's a club in New York City. Right. I don't know what it's for. Yeah. And we couldn't touch, you know, we had to like walk sideways along the walls because yes. thing was hooked up to some sort of alarms as if we were going to walk out with a Rembrandt or something. Right. And I thought I remembered a preamble where we're being seated. I, I thought there was a one at this location that we were involved in, but it could have been another one. Yeah. I was trying to remember our first one for me, which was the most harrowing, intimidating, yes. frightening. Like, what, what are you guys talking about? Which so there's not going to be any coverage. What? So this dinner, I do. I remember watching this episode also and seeing that camera around the table move. Yes. Them laying the track and the camera rotates around the table, which is so cinematic. As you said, they were, their only thing was make it look like a movie. But I just love the simplicity of how our characters very early in our relationship with the audience yeah. are very comfortable. couple have been together forever. Our interactions are just kind of perfect. And I love how Shirley is correcting and concerned for Moish that he doesn't tell a bad joke or a joke that's just too, uh, what does she call it? This is a dirty joke. Yeah. Dirty joke. No dirty jokes. You know, I made a determination again, because we are kind of on our own in a sense right. where right. is that I just made a determination from the very first episode and I saw it carried through in this episode that I was just crazy about you. And that if the line was to chastise you or correct you or anything like that, Always underneath was this enormous feeling of, I get such a kick out of Moish. I so adore him. He can do no wrong. In our very first episode together, you were telling a story and I was laughing at it yeah. because you're so funny. And, you know, it's hard to believe there are so many choices within the freedom that we're given. I could have been judgmental and sure. all of those kinds of things. And you the same. And so I just feel like we're a family, even sitting there. Michael, it was our second episode together with yes. him. Yes. I didn't know him before. And I felt like we were a family, you know, yeah. and that he had the shorthand that all people who are, you know, sort of lifers together yeah. have. It was very interesting that we both had the same reaction to this girl. I thought that that scene, I have always wanted them to bring that back. That line you had in that scene, and I've never forgotten it. She's strictly for something on the side. Shiksas are for practice. You don't marry a shiksa. Right. And then you said something about she's for on the side. And yeah. there was a time yeah. where women, because they didn't take care of themselves, if their husbands did have things on the side, it was not a deal breaker because they were the ones that had the home and heart. So whatever you do on the side is something that has nothing to do with me. It's not going to concern me in any way. I've got the prize here because you're the right. husband. Yeah. And you make my life work yeah. for me. Let's talk about working with Michael Zegan. You may have a great point of how he instantly felt like family and 
he's such a devoted professional and a good laugh and a charming very pure seller. very pure very pure you of know heart never... and soul and commitment yep. yeah no one in this show i can really say this i feel like no one comes from ego which with a bunch of actors together is absurd but i never feel like you know it's yeah. my close up i never feel that vibe ever 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 and i certainly never feel it from michael it's like he's very pure all of his reactions are very pure and it's not about ever look at me not once not once 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 i mean it's quite amazing in a way yeah you also made me realize i've never heard any of the actors which i've always heard on everything else i've never heard in the experience of shooting the show any of the actors say can I get one more because I don't like anything I've done so far? We've all said, can I get one more at some point? But not with the specific concern no. of, I've only been horrible until now. There's, right. you know, And you just know it's born of insecurity. It's not born of reality yeah. or self-awareness. It's unbelievable yeah. how no one is, everyone seems to be there to serve their characters in the story much more than themselves. And each other. Yeah. And particularly in television where people bring the material to them, you yeah. know, there's such a class system in show business, which is not really on the side of material, to tell you the truth. Sure. It's not, it's never really in pursuit of the storytelling. Right. It's in pursuit of individual careers. I just do not feel that. And boy, we are, you know, this was only our second episode with Michael. And I just felt like that scene that you had with Michael when I was in the bathroom, where I had the exact same scene, but in one word, which was no. Yeah. But you know what I mean? I only had one word and you started your scene with him with no, and he didn't know what you meant. Mm -hmm. And you said, no, you, this is not okay. This is not happening. And what was so interesting was the thing that you seemed to be the most outraged about was that he introduced her to us. You went, and you certainly... Do not introduce somebody like this to your parents. Yeah. It, was, it was sort of like that understanding, which is when this is something that we should consider, then we'll sit down to dinner. This is not to be considered. Yeah. And Moisha's line to his son, Joel, she's young, she's empty headed. She doesn't eat. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that was so specific. And she doesn't eat. That, that would be one of Moisha's complaints. It would make so much sense, but be the low-hanging fruit if Shirley said it. Yeah. But to have Moise say it, it's just a parental Jewy observation. Right. And, you know, you think about it, he's an adult, he's a man, yeah. he's an adult, but he belongs to us in that way that they have written these families. He's a father of two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah, it's so good. So then after that, there is the moment where Joel has made plans with Archie to go see a play with the wives yes. or, and, yes. or Penny, the girlfriend. And then Joel gets a phone call in the apartment that Archie and Imogene are not joining, especially after Archie at the bar had said to Joel, Imogene's going to flip. She's been dying to see this. Yes. It doesn't matter what night of the week. We'll cancel whatever we have. And then to see him on the side of Archie and Imogene's phone call where it's crystal clear, Imogene is just shutting this down in solidarity to Mitch. Yeah, yeah. And also, the thing that I found was so subtle and so moving about that is that these two good friends who were had a lot in common, there's been a big fork in the road because Joel is single and Archie is a family man. And now all of a sudden they have very different lives. Yep. And you see in the end of that episode, Joel's longing for his old life. Yes. You know, that he really tore down something, you know, inadvertently that that he really wants back. So you have this guy who's married and has kids and says, you know, I can't go to the theater tonight because I have children and no babysitter. And Joel's reaction is not, oh, poor you. His reaction is poor me. Yeah. I don't have that. Yeah. yeah. And I thought that was really great. Beautiful and also very subtle. Yeah, very. You'd have very, to see very. a few viewings maybe to even pick that up. Yeah. And I do love towards the end of this where we saw Midge bomb twice, try to buy jokes, didn't have anything to do with her soul lesson with Susie, who's excited about having business cards <laughs> yeah, and getting a message system. Right. And a phone. She's going to get a phone. A phone with a answering service. Yes. It's all a very big deal and becoming so real. And it only took bombing twice for Midge to say, well, I quit. Right. And to go through all of that, because she tried to take a shortcut, as you pointed out. 
Yep. And she had never experienced bombing. And I love the way they write Susie's reaction, which is this is this is it. This is part of the job. Right. You're going to bomb. Right. They all bomb. Everyone bombs. You right. continue to bomb. I think you said you saw the documentary I directed, Misery Loves Comedy, yes. where 60 annoyingly funny famous people are interviewed and asked all these, these different categories. One of the categories is bombs away. It's just devoted to tell me about your bombing experiences. And the one that really struck me, if you don't mind me bringing this up, was this British comic Rob Bryden. And he's the one with Steve Coogan to do those on the road uh, trip Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Movies, the traveling around. So when I asked him about bombing, he said he likes to do a thing that had never occurred to me or anyone else I've ever spoken to on the subject. He says, when I'm bombing, I slow down. Instead of getting panicky and speeding up, I slow down. And then the audience instinctively thinks, there must be something wrong with me. Look how confident this guy is. <laughs> That's so great. I thought he was doing horribly. Clearly, I'm wrong. So even just a couple of experiences of bombing, I quit, she says. And then we see her towards the end at a friend's party from the B. Dalton makeup counter, has this little apartment party. And the boys are over there and the girls are in the kitchen, wherever they are, have gathered separately. And Midge is at the center being funny right? because she's the funny one. And, you know, when people tell me they're taking a stand-up comedy class, I always go... Oof, okay. I mean, it it either comes naturally to you or it's going to be really much harder and arduous. And if you don't think funny organically, in fact, our great lead, extraordinarily talented, gifted, hardworking, multi-award winning actress in Rachel Brosnahan doesn't think funny. She's the first to admit. No. She's not a funny person. She doesn't think funny. Right. She gets a joke. She certainly can be a great audience, but yes. it doesn't have what we call funny bones, right? No. And she hears the music of the comedy yes. in the writing. Yeah. You definitely hear it. And she has such a touch with it. She has said to me on multiple occasions that the fact that even somebody considered her for a comedy, much less a stand-up comic character, yeah. was so outside her wheelhouse, you know, and she's just such a brilliant actress that she gets every single thing about it. It's so funny because last night I went to see a friend at a little venue here called the Triad. And as I was walking out and it's, you know, tables and drinks and, and a small little stage. And as I was walking out, the proprietor recognized me from Maisel and he said, maybe Midge, Rachel would like to come here and just do one night of comedy right on our stage. And I, it made me laugh so hard because I can't, that would be like going to jail for her. She would be so nervous. And then of course, the next thing I thought was the next time you have to be in town for an extended period of time, I'm going to make you go there so we can all see your stand up. You've listen, yet to do it for us. And I, we should, want to come. I should, I absolutely should. And, and weirdly, Jamie or, or surreptitiously, Jamie and I are going to that exact theater a week from Saturday, April 23rd to see one of Jamie's friends who lives out here in Los Angeles, but is doing a one woman show that she's put together. And one of her one night only performances is at the triad on April 20th. Okay, well, so that's I, where I'm, I'm going to set it up. I will see the venue and then I'll fall in love with it, I'm sure, and want to do it. Okay, great, great. I'm so glad because, <laughs> but I thought about Rachel and, you know, Nora Ephron told me when I was working with her on Heartburn. Yeah. And um, she did not like Meryl's performance as her. You know, it was autobiographical. Somebody yeah, is yeah. incarnating her. And I don't know if you agree with this or not, but Nora said to me, you know, you can't act comedy. She said, and that, you know, Meryl is our most brilliant actress, but you just can't act comedy. She said, you have to hear it. You just have to hear the music of it and know what to do. You know, I can't sing as you well know, but you know, those people who have perfect pitch and you say B flat, and then they sing a B flat. Nora was explaining people who are comic and you understand funniness, it's having an ear for it. Well, that is an interesting thing you said about Rachel Brosnahan, because she does hear yes. the written word, and she can effortlessly, or it makes it seem that way, portray the musical magical rhythms of comedy as written and choreographed by Amy and yep. Dan. And it also speaks, as you've pointed out, I'm realizing, to the brilliance of Amy Sherman, to choose this wildly unfunny but so talented actress yes, who does hear the music and will best perform it dramatically. Yes. And then that's why it works. Absolutely. And also because she, as Rachel and I have been talking the last couple of weeks, is that all of this character's comedy is, and maybe all comedy is, but not in the 50s it wasn't, is coming from her life. 
Yeah. So she's got skin in the game of her material that we get to see as part of the audience. Yeah. So she can deliver on both sides of it. Mm. She can have her heart broken by her husband, you know, having an affair. She can turn that heartbreak into her act yeah. on stage. And Rachel as an actress can give us both. And to only have one side of that coin, we wouldn't have the show we have. Yeah. Yeah. Not in any way. And so not true. in you know, okay. so we're really um lucky. And I thought what was really interesting when I revisited this episode was she failed once and then she said, that's never happening to me again. I believed her. And then, yeah. you know, 10 minutes later, she fails again with her bought jokes. But to watch Susie's reaction to her failing, Susie never seems to doubt nope. that these failures are not just steps. She doesn't go, mm, yeah. Maybe I should look for somebody else to represent, you know, not for a second. No, she's single-minded. Yeah. As you said, she knows what's inside that girl. And that is a very, you know, the idea that somebody, you know, we make fun of our representatives as well we should, but there is an art to recognizing talent. Yeah, I agree with you. And I love Amy and Dan's articulation of that, but also I will add that they give Susie the wherewithal to be so direct with Midge, not just critical, but critical with a purpose. Yes. You got up on stage and spoke your mind. Well, it's not going to come that easy every time. You've right. got to do some work on this. You've right. got to prepare to go on stage and comfortably speak your mind. And right. as Jamie pointed out in her notes, you know, Midge was intoxicated when she killed. Right. That's right. That's, that's first right. time. She was wildly intoxicated, which is not only the truth serum, as it's been called, the booze, the loosening of the lips, but the courage that comes. Let me get a shot of courage. All of that combines to that perfect storm that was that first performance. And now Susie's saying there's no just getting up on stage and speaking your mind. And how does she know that? You know, that's yeah. what's so interesting that you're watching her also discover what she's meant to do. Yep. By the way of this girl, you know, when I teach acting, sometimes I always say, you know, there's nothing more unreliable than inspiration. Mm. It's really fun, but it's so unreliable. So mm. you kind of got to figure out, you have to learn what you're doing, because if you're going to count on inspiration to show up for you, you are taking way too big of a chance as a performer. Yes. The task, the job of stand up and maybe every actor, not maybe, is is to make every performance appear as if it's the first time your character has ever said these words. That's the actual Absolutely. You listen, Absolutely. you respond. Or for the stand-up, like a prize fighter, you have people in your corner, but when you step out of the ring, you are alone. Right. And you are living moment by moment by your instincts and preparation both. Right. And at any moment, the audience can knock you off your feet with their... Really? With their yeah. lack of appreciation. Oh, yeah. It's it's the weird phenomenon of the art form, and I will call it that, where you can yes. be killing for 47 minutes into your hour performance. I mean killing. But if you spend just a minute consistently not killing, you've removed 47 minutes of a relationship with the audience, and they want you to die. Wow. You won't know this because you are a stand-up, but when you're funny, a funny person. People always say to you, you should do stand up. You know what I mean? They say it like sure. you should have a peanut butter sandwich, like as if it's, you know, yeah. I can't think of anything scarier in the world than doing stand up comedy. And then when I add to it what this story is, yeah. a woman in the 50s. Oh, yeah. I mean, the courage that this character must have. And Susie, these two women are so brave. That's what I got from this episode was how fucking brave they are. And, you know, what did you get at the end of the episode? You know, she's made a commitment to, I'm never doing this again. I'm not going to go through that humiliation. I'm not even supposed to be doing this. It's a secret from everybody. And nobody does this. That's a woman. And this was a stupid idea of mine. Right. And she seems very committed to, you know, thank you and good night. Do you get from the party with the girls where she becomes the center of attention and she's just off the cuff telling the truth about what her day was like and they're all laughing at her. Did you get the impression from that that it is at that moment that she reconsiders doing it again? Well, what's nice is we don't see that twinkle in her eye, which I love. No, we don't. That, that Amy and Dan didn't lead us by the nose 
Right. Don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. They just show us Midge being the center of attention organically and how easy it comes to her to just, as you said, comment on her surroundings, improvise as a natural gift. So we don't right. see the wheels turning, which I love. But as an audience, you're like, okay, see how comfortable she is? This is great. She's going to be fine. But then the last shot, I think, is of Susie in her apartment just looking at the phone on her bed, this new contraption to her environment and the solitude and sadness of now what? So the concern is not on Mitch. It's on Susie. Yeah. That this might be over. That concern. That's what I wanted to know. Did you think, I mean, when I was watching it, I went, well, had they wanted the story to go in a completely different direction, I mean, that could have been the end of the stand-up part of the story. I so believed Midge was done with this. And it's true. I mean, Susie had, you know, sort of tied her tin can to that kite. And now it was yeah. on the ground. Yes. I mean, you're a wonderful writer and have been for a long time. I've proudly been a member of the Writers Guild since 1987. I insist on announcing to no one who asked. Um <laughs> <laughs> but it's also the fifth episode, which is a perfect time in an eight-episode season for some conflict to drive the narrative. So it was pretty, the second act of the season, act break, is this wonderful, perfect conflict that'll help drive us through the next uh, This episode, the only person who knows she does this, Susie, right? Her husband, her parents, nobody knows, right? No, that's right. She's totally on the download. Yeah, we about. see her say to her parents, I'm meeting friends for, can you, uh, I'll have Mrs. Right. So-and-so upstairs watch the kids. And then Rose announces she's a drunk. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Which doesn't seem to be a deal breaker for Mitch. Which is, <laughs> but, you know what I mean? It's not like, oh, how horrible. She's like, okay, but she's, you know, a grown up. Yeah. It's a pretty amazing and dense episode in terms of all of the, you know, when she first gets up right before she bombs, she and Susie have planned for this to be a sensational evening. Yes. It's all set up. And I went, wow, it's amazing how it really, because I I was watching it, I went, I don't remember any of this. I don't remember the story at all. I just was like really, really shocked by it. Yeah. Well, we shot it in 2017. I mean, this was five years ago and it seems like a lifetime ago. Uh, and not just because of the pandemic, which allowed all of us to lose a year or two of our lives, yeah. but also just changed the way everything works. So it does seem like a completely different life when this thing was made. I agree. I, I was watching it thinking, oh, shit, right. That happened. Oh, my God. Oh, look at- yeah. Caroline. Yes, my friend. You're going to have to come back on for many more episodes. This hour flew by. This is such a brilliant idea, may I just say. It's really a good idea. I mean, it was really fun for me to revisit it and really look at it. And it's also going to help me as we continue to land this plane. Yes. Is I thought it's a very good idea to go back and see what our journey's been. Yeah. You know, I've done that, Kevin. And I went, oh, I want to see where we went, where we come from and where we're going. It's really interesting. Yeah, Jamie and I had said we're going to rewatch every season when I was shooting the next season. And then things happen and you don't. And you're right. And you don't. But it's a really good idea, especially because we have this sort of five-year runway till this plane pulls in, you know, and I really want to see who these people are and who they became along the way. So promise you'll come back and do this again and again. You bet I will. I can't wait. All right. Well, I love you madly and I can't wait to return to work. Yeah. I guess I'll see you at the next table read. I will see you very soon. Yes, you will. Love to your Jamie. Yes, we have Jamie's. It's so exciting. We have Jamie's. All right, I'll see you. For sure. Well, how about that? Oh, Caroline Aaron, I love you so. Just the greatest. The the (laughs) one-of-a-kind insights from a -a one-of-a-kind person, Caroline Aaron. Yeah. Just great. Just amazing. She'll be back on a future episode, parenthetical S, multiple episodes, maybe. Yeah, she will definitely be back. And why not? Oh, my goodness. Any questions you might have that I can circle back around and answer for you about Caroline, please write to me. My Mrs. Maislepod at gmail.com. My Mrs. Maislepod at gmail.com. Yeah, I'd love to answer all your questions about this magical, wonderful, historically talented co-star of my dreams. And do some posting on the socials as I asked. Please rate and review. Do all you can. Tell everyone you've ever met. And continue to write to us so that I can open up your emails from the email bag and read a couple to you now. How about that? As promised, as threatened. Here we go. 
Today's question is, in fact, for my guest, Caroline, and it was written into my at gmail.com where the rest of you should be writing us with questions or comments. Today's question for Caroline is from Sherry, or Cherry, C-H-E-R-I-E? Hmm. I'm going to go with Sherry. Sherry writes to Caroline, how is it playing a character who looks so different from you in real life? I played roles on stage where I enhanced how I looked, but never took the opportunity to do other roles where I looked so dissimilar, except with old age makeup, which I no longer need. Aw, Sherry, don't be so tough on yourself. Sherry goes on. I gave up the stage when I moved to South Carolina. And then there's a period and a change of thought. So, Sherry, I need personally to know why. Was it the move? Were you exhausted by the time you got there? Was it the people of South Carolina who said stop? I gave up the stage when I moved to South Carolina. (laughs) See, my guest Caroline is from South Carolina. Sherry goes on to Caroline. I'll stay out of it. I was pleasantly surprised at how beautiful you are out of costume. I enjoyed your character and your performance and look forward to your interview with Kevin Love and admiration, Sherry. Thank you for that email question, Sherry. Very, very much appreciated, regardless of my comments. And now, the answer to your question from Caroline Aaron. Sherry, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Anyhow, thank you so much for your question. And I really appreciate the compliment that I'm beautiful out of costume and makeup. The truth is, it didn't really change my face very much for this character, but I think it has to do with the time period. You have to remember, this was a woman who was living in her prime in the 1950s. And in the 1950s, a 50-year-old was a very old person. I have a picture at home of my mother sitting next to me when we went to the Emmys last year. And it was the year that my mother died when she was 67. And we look like we're from different generations. I really appreciate your observation. And I think sometimes characters just travel through you and out your face. And you don't really know what you look like while you're portraying them. And I'm very aware of my looks when I'm out of character. That's the fun of acting is that you get to take a walk in someone else's shoes. And from Shirley's point of view, she is a real looker. So when Shirley looks in the mirror, I think she sees a great beauty. Anyhow, thanks so much. Glad to share the profession with you, if only for a little while and wishing you all the best. Caroline, a.k.a. Shirley Maisel. Okay, this question for Caroline Aaron from Ed and Mindy. The question being, three of the cast members are 65 and older like me, and I can't remember my social security number. And television is often a weekly churn of words. So for either of you, Caroline or Tony, how daunting was it to memorize a television script that must have been as large as the Torah every week? Were flubs common? That's from Ed and Mindy. Ed and Mindy. What a good question. I really don't have that much trouble memorizing lines, and we are all very practiced at it because it's something we have to do as part of our profession. So I have little tricks that help me keep my lines in mind. Everyone has their own system, and we were required while doing the show not only to know our lines, but to know them letter perfect. The good news is, with this cast, we were able to be really supportive of one another, and we could drill with each other until we got it just right. We'd make a game of it every time you made a mistake, you had to go back to the beginning of your speech. And we were able to do it for the last five years and satisfy the brilliant writing that we had the great opportunity to be a part of. Thanks for your question. Glad you love the show. Caroline, aka Shirley Maisel. All right, time has come to say so long. Watch all episodes of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime. Listen and subscribe to my Mrs. Maisel pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, however you're listening now, or listen to my Mrs. Maisel pod on Amazon Music. You know what? There's another option. You could just ask Alexa. Alexa, play my Mrs. Maisel pod on Amazon Music. And it will. I love you. Thank you. Keep in touch, please. I'm depending on all of you. Spread the word. Work your magic so that we can continue to work ours. I love talking to these people, and I love hearing from you. Until next time, I'll see you in my dreams. But until then, be kind to each other. Oh.
Okay, closing credits time. My Mrs. Maisel pod was created by me, your host, Kevin Pollack, research writer, producer, Jamie Fox, and our engineer, recording, post-production producer genius is Ken Plume. My Mrs. Maisel pod is brought to you by the fine folks at Q-Code. Q-Code. Sounds like something, doesn't it? Oh, lastly, you should know... I'm told by legal to make this crystal clear that my Mrs. Maisel pod was not sanctioned in any way, shape, or form by Amazon Prime, nor the show's creators Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, although I feel the need to mention I did get their blessing. Okay, good. That should save me some legal fees. Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalley. And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.